is recording. So I want to try to begin with some scripture, uh, even though this is admittedly a historical study. Since Presbyterianism, as I've been saying, is a historical phenomenon, it's not, you don't find the word Presbyterianism in uh, the Bible, but it is something that emerged uh, historically out of the Reformation. So, right, Presbyteros. Uh, but so that means elder. But the but Presbyterianism as a uh, as a form of government or as a form of uh, as a denomination is not something you find. So Presbyteros, the word occurs as an elder, but Presbyterianism as a as a concept as a uh, as a form of ecclesiology is something that derives from scripture, but it's not explicitly stated. So it is more of a historical study, but certainly not divorced from scripture. I'm going to read. Colossians 3, the New Testament has a lot to say about worship, if you just have an eye to it. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And let us pray together. Father, we uh, look forward to another study here in Presbyterianism, and we, uh, we ask you that this time of teaching might be something uh, of an encouragement and, and uh, bring some edification, and especially as a preparation for the coming hour of worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I want to finish last week's uh, class before we look at uh, some new concepts or, or explore the same concepts a little more deeply this time, uh, we, were, we were considering uh, from the handout this, uh, this spectrum, and I'm going to draw something a little more detailed, but you have high church and low church, and then in the middle you have Presbyterianism, which uh, in that handout it says there is a balance, it's neither high nor low, it's the high church is a maximum of forms. The low church is a total absence of forms with maximal freedom. So that would be the bottom end of the low church spectrum. Uh, so whereas the, the, the top end of the high church spectrum would be no freedom whatsoever. Um, so considering that spectrum, Presbyterianism ideally falls in the middle. Uh, that would be to differ somewhat with uh, Daryl Hart in his book, he, I think he's wanting to push Presbyterianism up the spectrum some and view it more as a high church alternative to other high church uh, settings. I would, I would not agree with that entirely, but I would say we do need to push it up the spectrum. So Presbyterianism needs to have less of a low church uh, flavor in the current setting. It needs to be pushed up uh, to a higher setting. But we're trying to avoid this, the extremes. And my assertion or my contention is that Presbyterianism is best suited to do this. Uh, to, it's best suited to express the best things about the high church ecclesiology while at the same time avoiding the dangers. And then you could say the same things about low, low church. So uh, it offers the high church elements for those longing for it while avoiding its extremes. Uh, and it's also a safe haven for those who are coming out of the high church but wish to avoid a total rejection of the sacred and the substance of high church worship. 
So the ideal looks something like this. And I, I haven't written this on, um, on the outline, but I'll write it on the board now. I, I would say the ideal is worship that is formal as opposed to worship that is formless. Does that ring a bell in anyone's mind? Was there anything that was formless and void that was not good? The creation. Uh, and, and, and too much, uh, or the pre-creation chaos. This is what happens when there is an absence of forms and an excess of freedom. You end up with worship that is formless and void. <laughs> On the other hand, there is another extreme that you want to avoid, and that is worship that is uh, formalistic, or formalism. And uh, can anyone think of an example of that in the Bible? The, the, the religion of the Pharisees. So they adhered to certain things, but their heart wasn't in it. Uh, so they were hypocrites. And this is what happens when uh, there is an excessive adherence, uh, ad adherence to the forms without, uh, without the heart or without the spirit. So, again, uh, the ideal is worship that is formal. That's what you find in a Presbyterian setting. And I believe uh, Daryl Hart uses that language. Uh, that's what is, what is absent in a low church setting. It's super duper casual. Um, and and uh, there's another word I'm looking for, but it's not coming to my mind. Uh, but, but the problem in a formalistic setting is that it's just taken, it's taken too far. And it becomes stifling uh, to, to, the, to the spirit and even to faith. So, uh, what you want to have is the presence of well-thought-out forms in worship, uh, and, pre and worship that is reverent, uh, and that is formal, but without taking to the extreme. That's, that's the balance. So, uh, that, that concludes, that concludes uh, the last lesson, uh, but coming now to lesson number six, I, uh, I want to fill out the... Uh, the bottom of the handout, the high church, low church spectrum, and just consider that a little bit more. So we're still looking at form versus freedom. Uh, and that, again, that's, that's what you have here on the board. This is too much freedom, this is too much form, but the balance is, uh, is what, I, what, I, what I've been stressing. But if we were to look uh, at, if we just did a diagram like this, high church here and low church here, and then we began to explore the actual church scene today, I think we could map out, uh, we could map out what you actually have and what you find, and then also what, where Presbyterianism ideally falls. So again, high church is... We're going to say maximum of forms, 
and blow church's maximum of freedom, I think, by the way, I don't have the book with me, but Terry Johnson says Presbyterian worship has room for freedom in the context of well-thought-out forms. There's a quote, something like that. Again, capturing the balance. But beginning with the high church, where do you think we would begin? The highest end of the spectrum. Roman Catholicism. And also, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on this by any means, but I think you can include uh, Eastern Orthodox. And anyone who's been in one of those settings uh, can, can uh, attest to the fact that it has a very high church feel. And it, it's, there's something of an awe-inspiring element to the worship, but there's also uh, a lack of spiritual substance and spiritual meat. Just under the high church, uh, Catholicism is something that has an enormous appeal in the modern Protestant setting, and that would be high church Anglicanism. And people are flocking to both of these, whether Roman Catholicism or High Church Anglicanism. And it's very, very close, uh, depending on the Anglican church you end up in. Just below the Anglican, uh, who do you think would come next? Any guesses? Well, I would put them there. So take another guess. Lutheran. Lutherans, I would put them higher up... uh, on the spectrum than the Presbyterian. And again, if you've ever attended a a Lutheran church, you're not going to get that low church feel. You're going to get something kind of in between what we're used to, but also the high church uh, of the Roman Catholics. Uh, Now, just below Lutheran, anyone want to guess? We're right in the middle, so there's your answer. Presbyterian. Presbyterian. Okay, this is the ideal setting. Um, I, I don't know that it always works out this way. You can end up in some Presbyterian churches that are like a high church Anglican service. You can also end up in a lot of Presbyterian churches today that are much lower on the spectrum. But this is this is kind of an ideal uh, falling out of where things are. Um, so after that, I would place... Now, I've been in all of these services of all of these. So I'm speaking somewhat out of my own experience, and your experience may not match mine exactly but i would put the country baptist church i don't know if you've ever been to the country baptist church or a revival meeting uh but but i have uh so i would say they come next and maybe you would disagree with what i would say after that is the charismatic church we are now having even more freedom and less forms but you know the baptist Uh, The local independent Baptist church is going to be, uh, there's going to be a a fair amount of forms, but still more on the side of freedom. Now charismatic, I spent some time in the charismatic church, and there is freedom to an extreme degree, because they believe in the freedom of the spirit, and they believe that any presence of set forms stifles worship. After that... This is becoming more and more popular, especially in the homeschool movement, is the house church movement. Uh, And my criticisms of the house church movement would would all be found in this class. And then, uh, what do you think comes even lower than that on the spectrum? The emergent church? No. 
The church. Yes, no church. No church. And I know lots of Christians like this. I'll put them in quotation. Lots of Christians like that. Me and Jesus. People who are burned out. Um, people who don't go to church. So, I, I, I don't know if that's helpful to you. I find that helpful. It helps to kind of focus the issue. Uh, let's see. One, two, three. All right. So, there's, there's four below Presbyterianism um, and, and three above it. But there, there you get the sense of things. Uh, and, and I do think it's helpful as we're navigating the church scene today to think of it in terms of that. And, and especially in our setting... I don't think we know a lot of charismatics. We might know some Lutherans and Anglicans, but we do know some home church folks and we know some no church folks. I certainly do in Tallahassee. Um, and it's, it's sometimes difficult to speak to them because, you know, sometimes it's because they've made the home the temple, which, uh, which they've gone too far in the whole idea of homeschooling. Uh, but, but sometimes it's because admittedly they were so burned out by the low church scene, which is most of the churches in Tallahassee, and they just gave up. Uh, and, and in some sense, uh, I have some sympathy there. But, but really, the appeal of Presbyterianism is to both sides of the spectrum. And if we understand what we have, then we can, uh, we can have a, a, a broader witness and a broader appeal. Remember, the goal of evangelism, I think Dave Stevens said this in his evangelism class, what is the goal of evangelism? Is it conversion? Teach others. Think about the class. What is the goal of evangelism? What happened when people were converted in Acts? Told others. They what? They told others. Yes, well, that's, that's just more evangelism. But what were they telling them to do? What happened when they were converted? They were brought into the church. That's what we read in Acts chapter 2. Day by day, more and more were being added to the church. And when Jesus uh, tells the disciples to make uh, disciples, he says to teach them and to baptize them. Well, what's baptism? Teaching is part of it. But what is baptism? What does baptism represent? It's admission into the church. It's your entrance into the church. Uh, So the goal of evangelism uh, you know, along the way, conversion is part of it, but even conversion is not the end goal. <laughs> the end goal is to see them brought into the church. And so it even transforms your view of evangelism. Are you just sharing tracts or are you inviting them to church? Uh, that's the end goal is to see them in church. And so what you're really selling, that's a bad word or offering. Let me use that. What you're really offering to people is not just me and Jesus a no church uh, ecclesiology, but you're offering them a bigger picture, a place in the church that Jesus is building. Now that sounds very high church, but it's not. It's right in the middle. It's just a rejection of everything below it. Certainly starting here. It's a rejection of uh, house church, no church, and even the charismatic church. So, And I know a lot of us are, are recovering charismatics. I certainly am. I mean, that was a long time ago, but many of us spent our time uh, in the charismatic church for a short period of time. So, yes, David. Country Baptist Church, is that really sort of loop into the, like the Southern Baptist Convention, like, like uh, Celebration Baptist? I mean, where do they fall in that? Yeah, I, I guess I didn't hit every everyone. I mean, 
I'm really thinking about, um, I don't know. Is, I mean, you could say, what about Methodists? What about Southern Baptists? I really am talking about a distinct phenomenon. Okay. And some of these churches are in the Southern Baptist Convention. Some of them are just purely independent. Right. And, uh, and it really is just, the church is an island. Um, so, um, and, and, uh, and I, like I said, I've attended in, in my day, those churches. Um, and there is, there, there is some degree of forms, but it's a much more casual, uh, folksy kind of worship. Right. Go ahead, Dave. There, there's independent Baptists and there's general Baptists and there's particular Baptists. <laughs> exactly. There's, uh, Southern Baptists and all of these have different denominations that they belong to, but even the Southern Baptists, the regular Baptists, and um, independent Baptists means you, you don't belong to any Baptist denomination at all. But most of these Baptist denominations are practically speaking, um, they adhere to the autonomous church. That means right. they have no oversight from the denomination. Correct. There is no sense of discipline or anything of a church being thrown out. If you want to be a part of Southern Baptist denomination, that's great. You just, you know, just declare yourself to be a part of the denomination. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it's very, very loose. It is. It is. Um, so. All right. Um, and, and none of these things happen in a vacuum. I mean, so many of these are a reaction to something else. <laughs> um, so you don't just end up there. This is the big fallacy of the charismatic church, is they thought that there was a straight line from them to the apostles. Like, everything that happened in between the early church and themselves had no influence whatsoever on their modern expressions of worship, which is completely ignorant. Uh, and naive. The reality is that there are a lot of historical developments that led to their particular uh, forms of expression that they were just unaware of. And I think it's helpful, what I'm doing here is is for us to understand we didn't just end up this way, uh, but that there are, there, there are historical precedents for our forms of worship, which we ought to evaluate and interact with. I mean, maybe some of it we don't like, but let's just be honest and say, you know, American Protestant Presbyterianism is something that has a history. Uh, go ahead, Matt. Interestingly, about ignoring the past history of the charismatic, when we were there, um, they, the pastor actually developed a creed that we would recite. So it was interesting. They, I guess in one level, they felt the need to go to more of a high church spectrum, but the creed was awful. It was, um, it was. You're saying the pastor wealth and prosperity and all this, and so it was. While trying to to make it more formal, maybe he was using the utmost of freedom mm-hmm. and not coming down on the gospel. Well, at all. there's a reason for that, which I'm going to talk about today. If I get there, did, did I interrupt you? Or were you done? Okay. Yeah, something I'm, I don't know if I'll get to this because I don't know the time. It's amazing when you're teaching, the time races away. Sometimes when you're preaching, though, it doesn't. I, I don't quite understand that. Uh, but anyways, I, I actually do have some thoughts on that, which we might get into it another time. But um, th- what I'm going to say later on is that part of the low church sensibility is the idea that uh, in order for religion to be sincere, it must always be expressed from my mouth. It cannot be in the words of another. And so it's a rejection even of the ancient creeds because someone else wrote that. And I, in order to be sincere, have to craft it myself. So, 
The, the next thing I want to do, any other thoughts on that before we move on? The next thing I want, I, I have been saying I wanted to do this uh, with a few ideas, and I, I decided just to do it with one, and, and that is preaching. So we're still looking at the form-freedom uh, dichotomy. So uh, an example of formalistic preaching would be, in my opinion, uh, and I, even in Protestantism, uh, this is not a popular idea, but adherence to the church calendar, that would be formalistic preaching, in my opinion. That is denying the, the principle of freedom. I think, you know, December 25th, pastors should not be constrained to preach a particular text or sermon. Uh, so I think that's in violation of the, the New Covenant principles. Uh, so another excessively uh, formalistic style of preaching would be uh, reading the sermons of another man. And I talked about Luther's postals for the uneducated late, uh, pastors. Now that is better than nothing. And I've even told the elders that. If you don't have a sermon, then, uh, and I can't preach, then you should read a sermon. And in the, the Second Great Awakening, I think, yes, the Second Great Awakening, there were reading rooms. There were, God was, was building churches faster than laborers could be sent into the vineyard, and, and churches were forming, and people had to sit down and read sermons. But imagine people who were that hungry for the Word of God that they did that. Whereas today you have an abundance of laborers, but a lack of interest. People uh, so often stay home. So we have the opposite problem. And, and you look at the seminaries of men trying to come into the church today, there's the opposite problem. There's an abundance of laborers and a lack of, of hungering for the word. Uh, so uh, uh, another type of formalistic preaching would be, um, and this, I mean, this hits closer to home, uh, to myself and to the OPC, but if... If a man were to prepare a sermon very carefully and then to read it in a very dry and lifeless way, that would be excessively formalistic. Okay, the other side of the spectrum, freedom would be, uh, would be this one's easy. Uh, the man who just stands up and preaches. He didn't prepare anything. Or um, the idea of lay preaching, which we reject in the OPC. Uh, so... Uh, what we're, what we're striving for here is uh, the same thing that we saw with prayer, very briefly, that we don't want to, to have written prayers, or at least have a limited use of them. There is a place for them. The same time, in the midst of a spontaneously offered prayer, it should be, as Terry Johnson said, a studied prayer, a well-thought-out prayer, a prayer that has uh, strong theological underpinnings. So the, in the same way, you can... You can look at preaching in that way. Uh, so, um, if we looked at modern preaching, we would have to say it has a certain form. I often speak about modern preaching. That was modern preaching, I'll say, if, if, I'm, if I'm encountered with it. But that's just what you have to expect from the modern preacher. I am not a modern preacher. but Because uh, I don't think, quote, modern preaching, in many cases, is really even preaching. Uh, just because a man is in a pulpit talking doesn't mean he's preaching. And this is the whole idea that I want to stress here. Uh, preaching, like other things, is an act of worship. Uh, and, 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 and absent certain things, it really isn't preaching. Go ahead, Dave. Well, what you're talking about that makes me think about the podium on which the preacher speaks is a reflection of this idea. You look at like a Catholic church or an Orthodox Presbyterian or Orthodox, uh, uh, they, 
their, their podium is like gigantic. I mean, you have to take steps to get to the top of it. Right. You know? Then you look at a regular, you know, it's just a, a podium. But now the idea of a boat in a modern church is a stool. It's a stool where you put your latte and you stand beside it. And you, you try to speak really authentically. Uh, You're like at a, you know, a speakeasy. Right. It's a TED Talk. Um, so, but, but modern preaching has a form, and that form communicates something in itself. Remember, the medium is the message. The medium is the message. And so the way you communicate is itself a theological statement. It is an expression of your view of worship. To stand up there with the stool next to you and, 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 uh, and have a, a, a chat with the people is a reflection of your idea of what preaching is and should be. Uh, so, as I say, modern preaching has a certain form, even in more formal settings. It's much more conversational. It's, it's, it's uh, weighed down with excessive illustrations. Um, and, and all of this is expressing something about their view of the preaching. Uh, typically, it is the view that people will not listen to a biblical ex- exposition. I've heard people say that. You can't, you can't get people to listen to biblical exposition, so you have to pique their interest. Um, with other things, which in my opinion is borderline blasphemy. Uh, so I, to me, there is nothing more intensely interesting than the word of God. And I find illustrations in general to be distracting and kept. I mean, the Puritan model, I think, is great. A one line illustration and then keep keep the exposition going. Uh, so what what is a sermon? What is the form of a sermon that makes it a sermon? Well, uh, that. This is, this is embarrassing to admit, but it's the truth. I, I read uh, Our Directory of Public Worship, and I love this book. It's one of the three books in here. It brought tears to my eyes, speaking of what preaching is. I, 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 was, I was so, I mean, you, you have to remind yourself sometimes, even as Christians, what we're doing as we come together. And, uh, and, and I think this is a worthwhile question. What is the sermon? By the way, I, I would also make this distinction, uh, along with Lloyd-Jones in his book, Preaching and Preachers, that a sermon and preaching are themselves two different things. So the sermon that I've prepared is lying on the pulpit, but I haven't preached it yet. And, and in fact, uh, I sometimes joke that, I, I told John this this week, a joke uh, I have with fellow preachers is that, well, I think I've got a good sermon. Uh, it's too bad I still have to preach it <laughs> because I, I haven't done anything with the sermon until I preached it, which is also, by the way, why listening to sermons online or reading sermons is not preaching. You have not encountered preaching. You have only encountered sermons. But, but still, I'm asking the question, what is, well, I'm really asking the question, what is preaching? What is preaching? Uh, this is what, now, both of these, the original directory of worship, I'll read some of this, but the, uh, the, the current directory of worship as well uh, tells us what preaching is. And uh, I'm not sure I'm going to finish this point today, but that's all right. I think this is an, a great illustration of the, the form-freedom dichotomy. The preaching of the word, the power of God unto salvation, is indispensable in the public worship of God. It is therefore a matter of supreme importance that the minister preach only the word of God, not the wisdom of man, and that he handle the word of God correctly, always setting forth Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. In the sermon, God addresses the congregation by the mouth of his servant, and through his spirit opens the ears of his people. The preacher shall prepare each sermon prayerfully and diligently. There you go. 
It rejects the idea of the man who just stands up and wings it. Uh, he may, may not use a text merely as a point of departure, but must take pains to expound the chosen text, bringing in other texts as applicable, carefully explaining the meaning, and diligently applying the particular texts for the salvation and edification of his hearers. He should take care in preaching that his exposition and application of the scripture be clear and simple. Again, the form of the sermon. Having regard to the capacity of the hearers in demonstration of the spirit and power with fervent zeal and that he not divorce Christian duty from Christian faith, the preacher must, as a Christian ambassador, seek to build up the saints in the most holy faith and beseech the unconverted to be reconciled to God. Nothing is more necessary than that the gospel of salvation by grace be proclaimed without any adulteration or compromise in order that the hearers may learn to rely for salvation on the grace of God in Christ to the exclusion of their own work or character, ascribing all glory to God alone for their salvation. It also says a preacher fails to perform his task as God's appointed watchman on Zion's wall who neglects to warn the congregation of prevalent soul-destroying teachings by the enemies of the gospel. Just an important reminder that the watchman on the tower is the preacher. It isn't the Christian who's out sharing tracts. The watchman on the tower is the preacher. Um, the original directory of worship I, I goes to even greater lengths. There's pages and pages of what a sermon must be. And the, the prevailing idea is that in the absence of these things, you don't really have a sermon. You have something else. It says, ordinarily, the sur- subject of his sermon is to be some text of Scripture. It says, let the introduction be brief. If the text be long, let him give a brief sum of it. I'm just hitting highlights here. You see the guidance it's giving to the preacher. He shouldn't burden uh, the hearers or their minds with obscure terms of art. The doctrine is to be expressed, expressed in plain terms. It is to promote edification. It is to be brought home to special use by application to his hearers. And to the natural and corrupt man will be very unpleasant, it says. Yet he is to endeavor to perform it in such a manner that his auditors may feel the word of God to be quick and powerful. It says the servant of Christ, whatever his method be, notice the freedom. Okay, it's saying every man has different gifts. There's freedom, but there is also a form that if he deviates from too much, he will lose the the idea of the sermon itself. So whatever his method be is to perform his whole ministry painfully, plainly. Faithfully, wisely, I'm, there are explanations. I'm just reading the descriptors. Gravely, I'm going to read that one. As becometh the word of God, shunning all such gesture, voice, and expressions as may occasion the corruptions of men to despise him in his ministry. In other words, that condemns the casual, chatty form of preaching you have today. Uh, with loving affection and as taught of God. And persuaded in his own heart that all that he teacheth is the truth of Christ. So what they're describing is the form of the sermon as it is delivered that actually makes it preaching. The demeanor of the minister. uh, The the delivery of the message. Now, uh, one of the things that I was hoping to bring in. We still have 10 minutes, so I think think we're going to get this done. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uses these exact two terms in his book on preaching. 
Now, I, I don't think I'm, I'm living up to this ideal, I'll be honest, at least as set forth in Lloyd-Jones. I don't know whether that means that I'm unable to thus far or that I disagree with him. I'm not quite sure at this point. Um, but but he, he believes, and he devoted a lecture to what he called the form of the sermon. Let's begin with that, the form of the sermon. He says, uh, the sermon is not an essay. It's not an essay, something that you can read in a disinterested manner. Okay, I hope you can't listen to a sermon in a disinterested manner. Uh, a lecture, same thing. This gets back to the idea of why teaching the time just races away, but not in preaching. There's a lack of intensity to teaching, whereas there is more of an intensity to preaching. There's a more, every minute, every word is more focused and directed uh, at the hearer. Whereas in teaching, it's like we're taking an idea and we're just all considering it together. But in worship, we're actually doing the things we're talking about. We're not talking about them, we're doing them. And that's always harder. Uh, so it's not a lecture, nor is it, he says, a running commentary. And a lot of preaching devolves into that. Well, I mean, I've been under preaching like this. Well, in this verse, you see this, you say a few things about it. And then in this verse, and then at the end, you just sort of close and, and move on. He says, that's, that is not the form of a sermon. I, I remember as an aside, John Murray reading his biography by Ian Murray. Uh, someone asked him what preaching is, and he said, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know how to describe it, and I, I do somewhat agree with Murray here, but I know it when I hear it. I know it when I hear it. Uh, I like that. But if it's not an essay, a lecture, or running commentary, what is a sermon? What is the form that makes the sermon? And there's two things that Lloyd-Jones says. He goes into this in much greater detail. But he says, the first is the burden of the text. That is the message that, from which the sermon arises, the burden of the text. It's not just this verse, this verse, this verse, and then this word, this word, and this word. But the primary thing you're seeking to convey is the big idea. Uh, and, and, and again, that's seen as a burden, a burden of the Lord that he placed upon the heart of the men who wrote those books. And that the man, there's a saying, the man has to preach to himself before he can preach to others. He has to get the burden in his heart. And then he can begin, like Paul, to try to convey those ideas to the church. So the first is the burden of the text. And then the second is the presence. Now, again, he goes into a much more detailed from introduction to conclusion, what the form of the sermon should look like, which is a great help to, to, to early preachers. Uh, but he says the presence of application from start to finish, but then especially at the end. I think I think uh, I read Matthew Henry once say I'm I'm ninety percent sure uh, this is correct that application is the soul of preaching. So it's the fact that uh, he certainly Lloyd Jones says this a, a, a sermon. Now this is also true of other forms of oratory. So it does resemble other things, but a sermon seeks to do something. It's like in a he says a lecture lacks the element of attack. So uh, you shouldn't come out from the pe preaching unchanged. Now, let's be fair uh, to the preacher and let's also be fair to ourselves and even to the sovereignty of the spirit. It won't always be the same. Some things will affect you greatly. Other things won't. The wind blows where it wills. Uh, and, and actually, in a later chapter, Lloyd-Jones calls that the romance of preaching. You never know what's going to happen. I don't find that very romantic, uh, but he says sometimes the spirit descends on you with great and incredible power and everybody can sense it. Uh, and that's what you can never transmit through a wire. You have to be present. Uh, Whitfield said uh, when they wanted to record his sermons, 
uh, that you'll get uh, uh, the thunder but not the lightning, or I might have it backwards. Uh, you, you can only convey the words, but not the experience. I think it would be the thunder but not the lightning, but again, I might have that backwards. So uh, you, ha- you really have to be there to experience what the Spirit is doing in the preaching. Um, and, and again, that's what makes preaching so wonderful, uh, or at least the potential of it so wonderful, is the way that it changes us. And that really is not, not what this is, what we're doing right now. But having made that clear, that there has to be that, that form, or else it really is a TED Talk, um, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and by the way, conversational preaching is a buzzword. I mean, that, people actually believe that's a good thing. Uh, so to be fair to them, they're self-consciously expressing their own theology, uh, but, but, but having made this clear, if you were to read Lloyd-Jones on preaching, he says that there must be the element of freedom. Now he would say, and this is where I'm not living up to the ideal, although he does say to younger preachers, be patient with yourself. He's very clear, you have to be patient with yourself. But to him, the ideal was to prepare your sermons carefully, but then to bring a minimum of notes into the pulpit. So he really believed in a maximum of freedom at the same time. And if you read his sermons, it's clear that he could deliver a sermon a first-class sermon with a, a small sheet of notes. Uh, but, but, but what you don't want is to give in uh, to the freedom at the expense of the sermon. The, the ideal is to have both. You want, you want to be... What does freedom mean, by the way? It doesn't mean the absence of preparation. It means engagement in the moment. That's what freedom means. That I'm not just engaged with old conviction that, that struck me on Tuesday. <laughs> but that I am fully engaged in that moment and that I'm open, this might sound a little bit cheesy, but I'm open to the inspiration of the moment, that the Spirit should descend upon me. Don't think that I won't deviate entirely from my notes and, and, and pursue a point with, with greater vigor than it ever occurred to me at my desk. Because the work of, of sermon preparation, you're only halfway done once you've written your sermon. You, you still have to preach it. And, and new ideas occur to you. And, and, and also there's, there's an element of exchange and interplay with the people. Uh, and, and so sometimes things will occur to you that just it didn't you didn't realize it at your desk, but but in the presence of the people, you have to push a point a little bit further. Uh, and, 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 and the biggest thing that you're open to is not the inspiration of the moment, but of the spirit, that the spirit is moving uh, in, in, in particular uh, services. And that's what you don't ever want to stifle. You want to to go all the way with that. Now, another example of that would be a prayer. Sometimes a prayer goes 12 minutes. What just happened? Where did the time go? That isn't ever my intention. But, but let's not stifle the spirit and say, well, it can only be five minutes. Or the sermon went long, because, not because I was, uh, <laughs> I was abusing my hearers, but because we were all so engaged, it just kept pressing forward. Now, that is the ideal. A sermon that was 40, 45 minutes and nobody even noticed until they checked their clocks. Now, don't think I don't notice the times you're getting restless and looking back as well. I mean, I know the other side of it all too well. Uh, so, but even then, if you have enough freedom and enough skill, perhaps you could say, I got to tighten this thing up and finish it. Uh, so uh, I, can't, I cannot be a slave to my notes. There is, there has to be freedom. So the, now I'm articulating it the way that, that I see it. Lloyd-Jones, I think, has an even grander view of freedom, like I said. Uh, so, but, but, but you've carefully prepared the sermon, but, but you're not a slave to the sermon. You still, you still are preaching it. 
Now, that w- that's what makes it terrifying, because you can prepare the best sermon you've ever prepared. But again, like I said, the problem is you still have to preach it. So this is what I would tell an intern uh, if, if, uh, if I ever had another intern. So um, all of the forms, all of the forms, we need to agree about what the forms should be and what they should look like. They should all leave room for freedom. But not so free that they lose the form. We're striving for balance. Let me close with this thought. I can make this thought in one moment. Uh, What is it that we are looking for in worship? What is it that we're hoping to find in the Lord's Supper, in the preaching? What, What are we seeking? God. That's the answer. We're seeking God. We want to have... Communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We want to have an this Maybe this would make Daryl un- uncomfortable, but we want to have an experience of God in worship. A genuine, edifying, real experience. Partaking of His holiness, being sanctified by His holiness. Now this is where I'm realizing in my notes, I did have more to say. Um, but, by the way, the form of the sermon, you have to round it off, you have to bring it home. In teaching, you can just say, well, we'll get to that next time. So there again, you see the difference between the form... Of each, And so we'll get to that point next time. What we're finding in worship and how the form freedom idea plays into both of those. So we need to get next door uh, and we'll just we'll just close with that.